you. I'm horrible with names, so you'll, if you ever see me before, again, just, you know, don't assume that I remembered your name. It's one of the greatest fears of my life. It really is. I can't even get my boy's name straight. My, my youngest son, I think, has my same genetic problem. He'll look at his brothers and he'll say, what's your name? And his brothers will be like, he's six, and they're like, you know who I am? You know, in fact, there was a the uh, older couple in our church was keeping them uh, for us. We were we were here, there, and everywhere uh, during our competition. And and uh, there's a guy that that uh, he should know his name. His name's Brad, and he would say friend. That's how he would address them. So uh, that's um, that's what he does. See, he has the same problem I do. And so people come up to me and they're like, "You remember me?" And I'm like, "Yes, I remember your face." See, now I do remember people. I remember their faces. I like I know you. It's I've done that with my wife. She gets so embarrassed. I'm like, I know that person. I know them. I don't know what their name is, but I know them. She's like, don't go over and ask them. And I'm like, I have to. So I walk her. I'm like, how do I know you? You know? And uh, they're like, oh, you went to school with me. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, so it's been, it's been great to, to be with you folks and, uh, and to get to know you. And uh, just th- so thankful what God's doing here. And, uh, and it's uh, been a joy and a privilege to be with you. I hope tonight's message is a blessing to you. Matthew chapter 14. I want to work through the chapter with you this evening. Um, this is a chapter that there's two miracles that take place within this chapter. And many times they overshadow the overarching uh, perspective of Jesus Christ in ministry. And uh, those two miracles are Peter walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000. And so many times we come to Matthew chapter 14, and we're gonna, we have to deal with those as we go through. But more importantly than that, or tonight specifically, I would like for us to just kind of walk, if you will, through the chapter in the shoes of Jesus Christ. To understand what he's going through and what is happening in his life. And I hope it will be a blessing to you. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll work through the chapter together. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts this evening. Father, we just thank you so much for your love for us. And we thank you for your mercy that's afresh and anew every day. And Father, I pray this evening again that the Holy Spirit would teach us. Lord, we realize we cannot, um, there's nothing we can say or do, or even with our personality that can communicate righteous truth to the heart of anyone and create spiritual change. Only you can do that through your word. So Father, we pray that you would do that this evening. And Father, I pray that you would be glorified in all that's done. That in these moments, our worship would be a sweet savor in your nostrils. And Lord, we just pray that you, uh, Lord, would just bless this time. Give me the words to say, that I'd say only those things that please thee. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Richard Foster, which I don't know of all of his works, but in this book, uh, Celebration of Discipline, he gives the discipline of service. And this is a list, and it's a fascinating list. He says, self-righteous service comes through human effort. True service comes from a relationship with the divine other deep side. Self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. True service finds it almost impossible to distinguish the small from the large service. Self-righteous service requires external rewards. True service rests contented in hiddenness. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. True service is free from the need to calculate results. Self-righteous service picks and chooses whom to serve. True service is indiscriminate in its ministry. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. True service ministers simply and faithfully because there is a need. Self-righteous service is temporary. 
True service is a lifestyle. Self-righteous service is without sensitivity. It insists on meeting the need even when to do so would be destructive. True service can withhold the service as freely as perform as performant. Self-righteous service fractures community. True service, on the other hand, builds community. When we think about Jesus Christ and His earthly ministry, it is important for us as we study the Gospels to see how He interacted, obviously Him being our greatest example. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, the Bible tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give His life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came to minister. It is in the overwhelming moments of life that our heart's selfishness or selflessness is exposed. I don't know if you've ever read the book Changed into His Image by Jim Berg, uh, but I love what he says there in the idea that hot water, the intense situation, always draws out and reveals what's on the inside. I, when I was a youth pastor, someone one time challenged me about why we play games. And they said, this is not spiritual. We shouldn't play games. And I was like, oh, absolutely not. And I said, I love playing games as a youth pastor. And I, they looked at me kind of cross-eyed. And I said, here's why. I can preach till I'm blue in the face and I can teach. But I put a kid out on a field, put him in a competition, and put him in a competitive situation. And what's on the inside comes to the outside very quickly. It's the hot water, right? It's the tea bag and the hot water. And all of a sudden, that high-intensity situation, what is on the inside is revealed, and then I get the opportunity of saying, hey, I saw that you lost your temper here, or you did this, and confronting them with truth. I coached basketball for a few years when I was a youth pastor as well. You know, sports, uh, I used to tell our, our folks, sports is a voluntary um, it's a voluntary situation that you place yourself in uh, that where stress is applied to you to see what you are made of. You do not build character in the games. You reveal character, right? Character is revealed in those moments. And I think all of us, I, I think our lifestyle, our culture today in America, we are a busy people. I know I am. I know there's sometimes I feel like I'm giving myself a high five as I'm going through the door. You ever feel that way? Yeah? You're like, man, if, I, if there was two of me, we could get something done, right? Uh, you're going from one thing to another, and you can be overwhelmed. There are overwhelming moments in life. But it's in those moments, it's in those moments when it seems like everything's coming at us that we really can see what God sees all the time. Sometimes who we are and the character of our being is exposed, and we have to do business with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God. I'm thankful for... The fact that Jesus Christ understands the busyness of life. This chapter is going to show us everything that he was going through in just one chapter. And I'll tell you, as I read through it and look at it, it's overwhelming. I'm thankful for Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now remember this, God cannot be tempted with evil. Remember, he tempted, neither tempted he any man. James tells us. So there's a difference between a solicitation to evil and then an evil desire. The way I illustrate that is this. You can offer me a bowl of peas and I am not tempted because I hate peas. Now, I've had people say, oh, you need the peas out of my garden. Like I've never eaten garden fresh peas. I have. I still don't like them. All right. 
I don't like them. So you can put a, a bowl of peas in front of me and I, you can solicit me to eat them, but I have no desire in my being to eat those peas. Nothing. And that's exactly when we think about Christ's temptation and that Satan solicited him for evil. That's not wrong. But Jesus Christ, because he had no sin nature, because he was virgin born, there was nothing within him that desired evil. And there never will be because he was holy. He was impeccable. He could not sin because God cannot be tempted. He cannot be drawn away. He has no desire towards sin. But even though Jesus Christ was impeccable, he was sinless and holy, he was still robed in flesh. What that means here in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 is he understood what it was like to be tired. He understood sorrow. He understood the emotions of life. He understood the ebb and tide of demand, if you will. In this passage, we're going to see him go through a number of things that... I think would stretch all of us. And we see him, as we would assume and know to be, walk through them with perfect grace and with uh, sinless perfection. The first thing I want you to see of this passage as we work through it first is the death of his cousin. We come into chapter 14, it says in verse 1, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of James and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, he is risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod, and he begins to talk about what Herod had done. Herod had taken hold of John, right? He had thrown him in prison. All right, why? Because Herodias, for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. So we know what took place here. John the Baptist calls him out on his sin, and, and Herod throws him in jail. And through a, circum, uh, through a, a series of events, Herod kills or martyrs, if you will, John the Baptist. We come to verse 8. It says, and she, being, uh, and she being before instructed of her mother. So this is the daughter of Herodias. Herodias says, hey, listen, go dance before Herod. If he asks you what you want, say, I want the head of John the Baptist. And that's exactly what she says. She said, give me here John the Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nonetheless, for the oath's sake. Now, he wasn't sorry because he liked John the Baptist. He was a politician. By the way, you know what politician means? Poly means many, right? Politics, poly means many. Tick means bloodsucker. Many bloodsuckers, all right? <laughs> he was a politician. He did not want to be... Uh, he knew that Israel had been drawn out to the wilderness to see and to hear John as a reed shaken. They had been drawn, and some of them had even followed him in his teaching of baptism under repentance. And so, you know, Herod is walking this tight, uh, this tight wire uh, and this tightrope of popularity, and it saddens him because now he's done something that could have a detriment on his political career. He says, but for his own sake, and them which sat with him at meat, so whatever ever other people thought, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it in to her mother. Verse 12, And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. Verse 13, When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. 
And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Now, I believe this. I believe every word in the Bible is there on purpose. I don't believe there's any filler. I don't even really believe there's any synonyms. (laughs) Every word is there uh, by divine design. And I believe that what we see here in verse 13, verse 12, as the disciples of John come to Jesus Christ and they say, John the Baptist's head has been taken off. I believe we see the humanity of Christ and that he gets in a ship and he departs, it says. He departs into a desert place apart. We have to realize the connection that Jesus Christ had with John the Baptist. Now, Jesus knew this was going to take place. He wasn't taken by surprise. Neither was he taken by surprise when Lazarus died. But Jesus still wept there. Now, I know there's a controversy on was his weeping because of their lack of faith? Was his weeping because of their sorrow? And the Bible doesn't tell us. And so I think it's appropriate to say both. I believe that Hebrews tells us he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So it's not wrong. And it wouldn't be wrong for us to, uh, to realize that Jesus Christ in these moments understood what had taken place. And here, John the Baptist, his cousin, is now departed. John the Baptist, if you remember, uh, was a child born uh, miraculously. Why? Because his mother uh, and, his, and his father were old and God opened the womb of Elizabeth in her old age, the Bible says. A woman who was called barren. Can you imagine having that nickname? All right, This woman who was known by her barrenness. God opens her womb. And then we realize, remember, uh, uh, Mary comes to Elizabeth. And Mary has conceived uh, the Christ child. And John the Baptist leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. And there's a connection there. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Uh, some, a man that had been prophesied from the Old Testament a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This was no, um, uh, this was no uh, less thing, if you will. This was, not a, this was not a little thing that John the Baptist had finished his race and had been beheaded. In fact, Jesus Christ said in Matthew 11 and verse 11, I, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now that's apart from Jesus Christ, obviously. Because Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world. He departs by a ship into a desert place. I believe we see Jesus Christ seeking some solitude. And we see that consistently in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Here is one of those moments where he faces the death of his cousin. He seeks solitude. He departs into a, uh, by ship into a desert place. And then it says it again, apart. When our boys were little, we had four boys in five years, and uh, Kristen would talk to me about how that she sometimes she would go to the bathroom, turn the lights off, shut the door, right? Because she's just trying to get away from them just for a moment. And if she turned the lights off, then they would assume she was not in there, right? If she had the lights on, they would think she was in there. But after they had searched the whole house, they would come and stick their hands under the door. You know, you'd see their little fingers, and they're like, Mom, Mom! And, uh, and our boys, see, I said this today at lunch. You know, the Bible says you reap what you sow. If you look into the Greek a little deeper, it says your wife reaps what you sow. That's true. Uh, my boys look like my wife, which we're thankful for, but they act like me. It would have been better if they had looked like me and acted like her because she was a better kid than I was. I wasn't a bad kid, 
but I was mischievous. Yes, uh, I was always into something. I think in third grade, I flicked chocolate pudding in my teacher's hair. Um, it was an accident. One of my buddies was coming at me, and I loaded my spoon with chocolate pudding, and it slipped, and it went right into my teacher's hair, right? So things like that happen to me all the time, and my sons have a good dose of that, right? And my wife, my wife has had to endure uh, those character traits, and, you know, sometimes you just seek that solitude, and here Jesus Christ is seeking that solitude, but what happens? Well, look at verse number 14. And it says, well, the latter part of verse 13, it says, And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. Here he is. He's trying to get away. He's trying to get some solitude. He takes a ship to get away. He goes to a desert place. Right? He's trying to get apart, and he turns around and looks, and here comes the crowds. Now, understand at this point, at this point in the ministry of Jesus Christ, these crowds were not seeking him because they believed that he was the Messiah. They had gotten to the place where they didn't even look at the miracles and allow them to impact their hearts. Many of them were just coming because they wanted the handout. They wanted the food. They were looking at the miracles as entertainment. And he confronts them in the book of John about that very thing. And he looks back and he sees the multitudes and they're coming. And he's trying to have a little bit of solitude, which we see by the pattern of his life, always directed him to commune with the Father. Not just solitude for solitude's sake. But a moment to commune with the Father, and here he turns around, and here they come. And the Bible says he has compassion. We see the death of his cousin. We see the depth of his compassion. Even in the midst of grief, Christ is concerned with the needs of others. He heals their sick and meets their needs. In verses 15 and 16, it continues, and we see his compassion. It says this, And when it was evening... His disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. Give them to eat. And they say unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on on the grass. And he took five loaves and two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitudes. And they did eat and were filled and they took up the fragments that remained, 12 basketfuls. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. All right, this is an amazing passage and there's so much here to unpack. But in the midst of this grief, he turns around and sees the multitude and he begins to minister. And we don't know, we don't know the time of day when the message is brought to him about John the Baptist losing his head. We don't know how much time has expired, but we do know this, that whatever time he received that uh, that information, and he goes and gets in a ship to depart, all right, that would have taken some time. He turns around, he sees the multitudes following him, and he ministers, and he heals their sick until the evening. And in the evening, when the disciples are like, listen, just send them away. Let them go get their own food. Let them, let them figure this out on their own. Jesus Christ, again, his compassion is displayed. And he says, no. He says, and we know that the dialogue that takes place, right? He says, what do we have, you know? And the disciples are like, man, if we had a year's worth of money, we couldn't feed this crowd. 
Not only that, but you realize it's not like it's Walmart's down the road, all right? You're talking about 5,000 men, all right? They probably sat segregated, so it was probably 5,000 men, probably just as many women, maybe just as many children, all right? There were probably 15,000 people there. You're not just going to walk down to the local Judean bakery and pull enough bread for 15,000 people. And we know the little lad is brought to Christ. And, and uh, you know, we look at this idea of, um, as it says in the text here, uh, it says five loaves and two fishes. Now, those weren't, those weren't two massive loaves like Italian French bread, you know, from here to the, uh, to the wall. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're not two fishes. We're not talking about two, you know, three, four hundred pound tuna. We're talking about five hush puppies and two fish sticks. That's what we're talking about. And God here does a miraculous work as he takes this little boy's lunch, which is a beautiful picture that God can take our meager, uh, uh, our meager things and do miraculous things with it. And he takes this little boy's lunch and he blesses it and he breaks and divides it. And if, in, in the book of John, we see why he does this because right around the corner, he's going to confront the Pharisees and they're going to say, well, if you're the Messiah, Moses said that you would give manna and he's just giving them bread. It's amazing. They see him provide bread for the multitude and they still say, ah, we don't think you're the Messiah. By the way, all of Christ's miracles always pointed to a teaching that he was going to do or had done. They were there for a purpose. But I want us to focus, I want us to focus on the fact that Jesus Christ could have dismissed them. He could have said, you know, I've been trying to get away. I've been trying to you know, uh, have a little bit of solitude and commune with my father. You're right, guys. Let's just send this multitude. Let's be done with them. But that's not what he does. He feeds them. He feeds them even though the... the the motive of the multitude was wrong. Someone says, oh, we can't do that. Someone will take advantage of us. If you're going to love people and you're going to serve people, you will be taken advantage of. Jesus Christ knew that they were only there for the handout. He knew that they were not even, uh, many of them had, had turned off the idea that he was the Messiah. This is the same mob that's going to say, crucify him and give us Barabbas. They were going to reject Jesus Christ. They were fickled in their beliefs. They rejected who he was, and yet Jesus Christ still ministered to them and had compassion on them. He could have seen this as an opportunity to be alone, but the needs of others was first on his heart. What was a bother to his disciples was a burden to the Savior. Boy, I love the disciples. You know why I love the disciples? It just gives me hope. They, they get it wrong, like every time. I mean, they really do. We look at the disciples' course, it's after they get the Holy Spirit that they become bold and they change the world. But I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, nine times out of ten, in, in, the, uh, in the interactions that they have with Christ, they're so far off, they're coming out of left field, Christ is like, no, no, we're going to feed them here. They just want to get rid of them. They want to get rid of them. I, I think of even the, the story where the little children want to come to Jesus Christ, and they're like, no, 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 don't let the children to Christ. And he says, suffer the little children to come to me. How many times, how many times do we see them? Here's James and John. You know, this is one of the worst situations. James and John are fighting over who's going to be on the right hand and the left hand, and they get their mom to ask him. They should have just surrendered their man cards right there. 
right? When your mom steps up to the Savior and says, now listen, how about my boy sitting on the right hand and left hand, right? I mean, that's horrible. And that's how the disciples were many times, many times. They were not picking up the deep spiritual truths that Jesus Christ was communicating. And boy, we see his patience. We don't see him rebuking them in this situation. We see him gently guiding them through. And he's having compassion on their lack of patience. And he's having compassion on the multitudes. But then in verse 22 through 23, we see the desire of his communion. Again, Christ has not lost the desire to commune with the Father. Look at what verse 22 says. It says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, the two words I think we should focus on is number one, straightway, which has the idea of immediately, right? And then constrain, which is to necessitate, to compel, even to drive. So here's the picture. They get done feeding the multitude. They collect the leftovers, right? And, uh, and Jesus Christ says, okay, guys, get in the boat and go to the other side. Like, no, 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 stop. Get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, have you ever done this with your children? You straightway constrain them, <laughs> Right after church, you're like, no, 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 go to the car. No, no, go to the car. I, it's like it's like herding cats with my boys, right? I mean, you get one and one leaves, and you're trying to grab the other one. And where did he go? You know, well, he had to step in to do this. Like, no, 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 they should have gotten in the car, right? And this is exactly what Jesus Christ does. He looks at them and immediately. He constrains them. He compels them to get in the boat, and then he says, "Go to the other side." Now, there's a whole message in here, and we don't have time to develop this second miracle completely. But I want you to see what happens. It says, "And to go before him unto the other side." Now, that's God's promise to them. Jesus Christ looks at them and says, and you get in the ship and go to the other side. That should have been, the word of Jesus Christ should have been what, uh, what, what anchored them, what moored them uh, to reality uh, during the midst of the storm. But it doesn't. They don't listen. And so in the midst of the storm, we see them panicking. But it goes on and it says, and while he sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitude away, multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. And so he detaches from the company of his followers. He desires to commune with his father. He did not seek entertainment or release, but worship and relationship with the father. Oh, listen, if I can stop here for a moment and draw us back to the example of Jesus Christ. We live in a, we live in a world today that is addicted to entertainment Listen, Facebook is not going to make you happy. In fact, there are scientific studies on the psychology of Facebook, and it's absolutely robbing you, robbing you of joy. It's amazing what they have proven on the reflexes. Do you realize the same people that invented the lottery games in Las Vegas are the same ones that have been influenced and have been used as consultants in all of the social media programs that you, they know your algorithm. They've got you there. We are addicted to our phones. We are addicted to the social media. And here's what we think. We have five extra minutes. You know what we say? It drives us to entertainment. But that's not what we see Jesus Christ driven to. Jesus Christ was driven to communion with the Father. And what will give you the depth of joy and satisfaction and, and, and life and life more abundantly is not the device in your pocket, but a deeper relationship with Christ. Communion with the Father. We'll spend hours on our phones. You want to see something that is, you want to see something that is that is convicting? Go on your phone and see how many hours a day you're on your phone. 
hours a day, most of us. Jesus Christ here detaches, he desires to commune with the Father. There's no doubt he was probably tired at this point. His heart is grieving the loss of John the Baptist. He's ministered all day, healing. Now he's fed the multitudes. He sends the disciples away, right? He sends his help away. He disperses the multitudes. And then he goes up to commune and to pray with the Father. Verse 24, we see the next aspect of his ministry. We see the delay of his coming. It says, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Here Jesus Christ is. He's up in a mountainous area, the Bible says. Uh, If you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, it's surrounded by mountains. It's kind of down or or suppressed into the topography there. That's why storms could be on the outside and could roll in very quickly and catch uh, vessels unawares. And the disciples now have been told to go to the other side. They're in the middle of the sea. These were seasoned seamen, right? At least some of them, James, John, um, uh, and, and they, had, they were fishermen. They had been on this, this water their whole life. They're in the middle of the sea. The Bible says it's the fourth watch, which means it's around 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And Jesus Christ has been communing with his Father, and he looks out and he sees him. In fact, John chapter 6 and verses 19 and 21 say this. So when they had rolled about five or 20, uh, 5 and 20 or 30 furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. And they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at land whither they went. And and so here he is. He he chooses not to go down to them immediately. He chooses for them to struggle in the storm because storms are good for us. And there they are. They're in the midst of the storm. And again, he's going to reveal himself to them. Again, he's going to demonstrate who he is. This is an intimate connection that God is going to have with his disciples because they need to know who he is. And so he allows them in the midst of the storm with the promise that they're going to go to the other side. And in the middle of the night, he delays his coming. He watches them. He knows the storm is coming. Why? Well, because he selected his priorities. He was using this as a teaching moment and also a moment to demonstrate who he was. But he was also communing with his father. And that was important. We see the delight of his calling. Verses 26 through 33, it says, When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if thou bid, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Now, this is, this is an amazing aspect here of what is taking place. 
Jesus Christ comes walking on the water and they're feared, they're filled with fear and the idea that they're going to die. And they look out and they see Jesus Christ. And though they've seen miracle after miracle, right? They just saw Jesus Christ feed maybe 15,000 people. And they look out and they see Jesus walking on the water and they're like, oh, it's a ghost. And then Jesus says, no, it's me. And Peter says, well, if it's you, then bid me come. And he says, come. Now, we give Peter a bad rap in this passage. Let me ask you a question. If Peter walked 100 yards to Christ before he sank, would that change your opinion? I think it would. You know, what's amazing to me is Peter's the only one that got out of the boat. Who here has walked on water? Oh, none of us. In fact, Peter gets put in a very elite class in this moment. There's only two people we know of that have walked on water, Peter and Jesus Christ. Anytime you can say, Jesus Christ and me have done something, that's significant, right? And if Peter had little faith, the other disciples had no faith. Because if little faith will allow you to walk for a short period of time on the water, that's impressive. By the way, you ever thought about this? How did they get back? I think Jesus and Peter walked back. Now, we, we look at Peter, and yes, did he falter? He did. He took his eyes off of Christ. And you know, that could have been, that could have been disappointing. Here, Jesus Christ is performing again another miraculous event that is significant. He's walking on water in the midst of the storm, and he says, yes, come. And he gives the grace and the power for Peter to be able to step out of the boat. And Peter's walking to him, and maybe it's like, hey, they're starting to get it. And then Peter takes his eyes off of Christ and begins to sink. And I'm so thankful that the moment that Peter said, help, Lord, Jesus Christ was right there. Jesus reaches down and grabs the hand of Peter. They walk back to the boat. They get back in. What I want to know is this. How come the other disciples, the moment Peter started walking, they didn't say, I want to try that. Bid me come too, Lord. But nobody else got out of the boat. Jesus Christ could have been disappointed. You realize in one day what Christ has endured, the plight of his family, the pressing of his followers, the pounding of the forces of nature, the panic of his disciples' fear, and Peter's lapse of faith. Christ ministered to the needs of others even in the midst of all of this. He manifests grace even though he experienced the burden of death, the busyness of duty, the begging of devotion, and the bother of his disciples. You know what's amazing about this passage? It says this in verse 33. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Why didn't they confess that when he had fed the 15,000? Right? Wouldn't you think, man, someone just took uh, these fish and these loaves and fed this multitude? Surely he's the Son of God. In fact, every miracle that Jesus Christ performed, someone could have said, Surely thou art the Son of God. By the way, that wasn't the end of the miracle, Peter walking on the water and Jesus coming to them. The Bible says that in, uh, in, verse, in John chapter 6 and verse 19 and verse 21, and immediately the ship was at the land. So you realize what takes place there? Jesus gets in the boat with Peter and immediately they're teleported from the middle of the Sea of Galilee to the shore, just like that. There are so many miraculous events taking place in all this and yet, and yet, 
this chapter can be summed up by three things. His grief, his giving, and his grace. Even in the midst of all of this, Jesus Christ is ministering. What I think is amazing is verses 34 and following. It says, And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased. You know what happens here in the midst of all this? We are never told that Jesus Christ actually rests. From the moment that he's told about John the Baptist's death, he tries to get away, the multitudes follow, he heals their sick, he feeds them, he goes up into a mountain to pray, the disciples are in the storm at three to six in the morning, all right? He comes back down the fourth watch and he walks out on the water, he bids Peter come to him, he saves Peter, he steps in the boat, the boat miraculously is on the shore, he gets out, they're in the land of Gennesaret and immediately people are coming back to him. We see Jesus Christ consumed with serving others. How often we get our eyes on ourselves. I can tell you this. You want to be an encouragement to your pastor? Jump in with both feet and just serve the Lord here in this place. I, I truly believe every member ought to have something that they're doing for the Lord. Every single one of us is called to be full-time Christians. We're all to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a missionary to the mission field that God's placed you in. You're Jerusalem. And then we are to serve the Lord and each other in this local body. Jump in and serve. Find a place. I, I've got, at, at our church, I've got more things that need to get done than Carter's got liver pills. I mean, it, it's... There is never a lack of need. There's always a lack of servants. And yet when we look at Jesus Christ and we see what he did in this chapter, this is an emotionally taxing chapter. It's amazing to see what Jesus Christ goes through in his earthly ministry. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. His humanity is taxed here in this chapter. And yet he just continues to serve with great compassion and great grace. Because he was God in flesh. I end with this illustration. In Ernest Gordon's true account of life in World War II, Japanese prison camp, the book is called Through the Valley of the Kwai. There's a story that never fails to move me. It's about a man who, through giving it all, literally transformed a whole camp of soldiers. The man's name was Angus McGilvery. Angus was a Scottish prisoner in one of the camps filled with Americans, Australians, and Britons who had helped build the infamous bridge over the River Kwai. The camp had become an ugly situation. A dog-eat-dog mentality had set in. Allies would literally steal from each other and cheat each other. Men would sleep on their packs and yet have them stolen from under their heads. Survival was everything. The law of the jungle prevailed. Until the news of Angus McGilvery's death spread throughout the camp. Rumors spread in the wake of his death. No one could believe Big Angus had succumbed. He was strong. One of those whom they had expected to be the last to die. Actually, it wasn't the fact of his death that shocked the men, but the reason for which he died. Finally, the, they pieced together the true story. The Scottish soldiers took their buddy system very seriously. 
Their buddy was called their mucker. And these Scottish soldiers believed that there was literally, it was literally up to each of them to make sure that their buddy survived. Angus's buddy, though, was dying, and everyone had given up on him. Everyone, of course, but Angus. He had made up his mind that his friend would not die. Someone had stolen his buddy's blanket, so Angus gave, gave him his own, telling his buddy that he had just come across an extra one. Likewise, every mealtime, Angus would get his rations and take them to his friend, stand over him and force him to eat them, again stating that he was able to get extra food. Angus was going to do anything and everything to see that his buddy got what he needed to recover. But as Angus's buddy began to recover, Angus collapsed, slumped over and died. The doctors discovered that he had died from starvation, complicated by exhaustion. He had been giving of his own food and shelter. He had given everything he had, even his very life. The ramifications of his acts of love and unselfishness had a startling impact on the compound. The Bible tells us, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. As word circulated of the reason for Angus McGilvery's death, the feel of the camp began to change. Suddenly, men began to focus on their mates, their friends, and humanity of living beyond survival, of giving oneself away. They began to pull their talents. One was a violin maker, another an orchestra leader, another cabinet maker, another professor. Soon the camp had an orchestra full of homemade instruments. They even began to have church. They called it the church without walls. That was so powerful, so compelling, that even the Japanese guards attended. The men began a university, a hospital, a library system. The place was transformed, and all but smothered love revived. All because one man named Angus gave all he had for his friend. For many of those men, of those men, this turnaround meant survival. What happened is an awesome, awesome illustration of the potential unleashed when one person actually gives it all away. And I leave you with this verse, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ, the greatest servant to ever walk on the face of the earth. All that we would mimic, all that we would follow his example seen here in Matthew chapter 14. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts this evening. Father, I pray that you would help us to stop looking at ourselves, to stop being so consumed with this world. Father, to focus on why you've called us and left us here. That is to be faithful servants of thee. Oh, that we would have compassion all that we would have the mind that you had when you walked on this earth. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts this evening. Father, I pray that our love for you and our love for each other would transform this Jerusalem. Father, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.